The, the Guardian newspaper released an article in March 2022, and it was an interview with a lady by the name of Elaine Brown. And Elaine Brown, she became the first and only female leader of the Black Panther Party, a, a political organization um, that ran between the years of 1966 to 82, which ultimately sought to bring about freedom and equality for men and women of color in the United States. But it's not the organization of the Black Panther Party that caught my eye. It was the quote above the photo of Elaine Brown. And, and in bold font, it said, you must be willing to die for what you believe in. You must be willing to die for what you believe in. This activist witnessing police brutality against people she cared about, about seeing injustice, wanting to bring her message to as many people as will listen, protesting for the equality of men and women in the culture that she found herself in, meant that she believed she had to be willing to die for what she believed in, to go that far because strongly she believed what she did. And, and the history of humanity, it contains countless moments of men and women who were willing to die for what they believed in, whether we think those things were right or wrong. On the 30th of May, 1931, a 19-year-old girl stood tied, bound to a stake in the midst of a mob, and she keeps her head held high and looking directly at one of her captors, a man of authority, a judge, and he speaks up and says she was to be burned alive, and the mob moves to light the firewood at her feet, and they laugh as the heat intensifies, and they hear her, her wince, and the judge yells over the flame, you may regain your liberty if you recant what you said. And with the fire growing larger and larger, Joan of Arc looked at the judge and said, every man gives his life for what he believes. Every woman gives her life for what she believes. Sometimes people believe in little or nothing and so live for little or nothing. One life is all we have and we live it as we believe in living it. And so as, as we take a journey further back into the pages of history again this morning, we see Paul, a follower of Jesus, a, a missionary, an evangelist, say similar words, which we've already heard reading. Paul says to his friends, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, that's the, that's the climactic moment of the opening scene as we come to Acts 21 and 22. And it defines the life of someone who wholeheartedly trusts and loves the Lord. And what we'll see this morning, modeled by Paul and his companions, is followers of Jesus who faithfully go and who faithfully keep going in the face of trials and hardships. So as Paul stands on a, on a coastal location called Miletus, um, and he says farewell to the church elders from Ephesus, he says these words, they're from Acts chapter 20, tw verses 22 to 24. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of grace. 
And so what we witness on the pages of our Bibles this morning is Paul faithfully going. Having just concluded our New Year series, uh, thinking about being a church that <clears throat> gathers, grows, and goes, we turn back to our series in the book of Acts, which we have entitled Salvation to the Ends of the Earth. And Paul is going to Jerusalem, trusting in Jesus that, that even if he doesn't make it beyond Jerusalem, the gospel will continue to the ends of the earth. This morning, I want us to see two observations as Paul faithfully goes. The first observation is Paul's love for people. Chapter 21 begins with the words, after we had torn ourselves away from them, them being the Ephesian elders. And so Paul, so great was Paul's love for these men that their departure felt like a, a tearing away. Paul probably knew he wouldn't see these men again this side of eternity. So it was painful to leave them. It was painful to say farewell. And when they set sail and stop off in Tyre, what do they do? Well, they, they seek out the disciples and they stay with them for a week. Paul and Luke and whoever else is with them, they're desirous to be in fellowship and company with fellow believers. When they get to Ptolemais, they stay with their brothers and sisters in Christ for a day before heading to Caesarea where they stay with Philip. They're, they're not necessarily in a rush to get to Jerusalem. Anytime they have an opportunity to to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ. They're stopping off and taking advantage of that, making the most of that, because gospel ministry is, is a loving people ministry. Before we come to faith in Jesus, we have what Augustine called disordered love, where we are twisted in on ourselves, loving ourselves, self-centered love, but now, in Christ, we are defined by an other person-centered love. And Paul's love for people is reciprocated in the people's love for Paul. The fact that the language is plural. We tore ourselves away. We put out the sail. We went. We found. We sought out. Paul, Paul has people with him. It's a, it's a team ministry. And let's face it, having gone through what we've gone through in Acts already, we know that Paul's journeys were less than smooth sailing. And to be associated with Paul at, at many times would have had serious social implications for the men that went with him. But they love the Lord, they love Paul, so they want to be on mission with him. And the welcome they receive in every place they go as they seek out fellow believers, hospitality abounds, warm welcomes abound. When they finally get to Jerusalem, it says that the brothers and sisters received us warmly. There's an affection towards Paul and his fellow gospel workers. And I think one of the things that emphasizes their love for Paul here is how people respond to those predictions that the Spirit makes them aware, aware of. In 21 verse 4, as they're staying with the disciples entire, Luke records, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then if you look at verse 10, Agabus appears on the scene and he performs a, a visual demonstration of the prophecy. He, he binds his feet and his hands with Paul's belt and he says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jerusalem leaders, in, the, leaders the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And we hear how the people respond in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people pleaded with Paul 
not to go up to Jerusalem. They love this guy. They hear what the Spirit is predicting and they plead Paul not to go. John Stott helpfully points out that the Spirit is certainly not contradicting himself. The believer's entire urge Paul through the Spirit not to go. Agabus warns Paul with the words of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit also told Paul to go to Jerusalem back in chapter 20. And Stott continues to point out that there's a difference between prediction and prohibition. Paul has been called to go to Jerusalem by the Spirit in chapter 20, even though imprisonment and hardships are predicted. And the Spirit has now revealed those same things to those who are with Paul, and they're concerned for his safety. They plead with him not to go. And I think there's a warning for us in this. We might be too quick to to jump in and discourage our friends and our family from following God's call on their life because we think it might be dangerous, they might get hurt. So let's just run with a hypothetical for now. If a family member or a friend comes to you and says they feel a very strong calling from the Lord that they are to go to make Christ known, to reach the lost in a country where being a follower of Jesus and sharing the gospel is punishable by death. What's your, what's your gut response? Do you want your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, would you want them going where proclaiming the name of Jesus would result in their death? And we would probably urge caution, Right? It is healthy and it is helpful to care for the safety of our loved ones. But I think what this passage prompts us to do is that we must always land where Luke and company landed. In verse 14 of chapter 21, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the Lord's will be done. One commentator says, all of us, if we are obedient to Christ, will face death of some sort. For the cross is a non-negotiable prerequisite of discipleship. He says, our Christian loved ones may not understand or appreciate the path we are taking. If they oppose us, it's not because they oppose God's way, but because their misplaced love, in their misplaced love, they want to help us avoid pain. We must explain what lies behind our decisions and help them understand and accept the way we have chosen. Those who respect the will of God will relent their opposition since they fear opposing God. And this is what happened in Caesarea when the believers said the Lord's will be done. Gospel community thrives when we love one another, but always conceding that the Lord's will be done. And as those who stay where we are while others go to different places with the gospel, how should we love them? Well, let's, let's pray for them. Let's support them in prayer If you look at verse five in chapter 21, it says, they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside of the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Many go from Hamilton Road Baptist Church in various ways, some locally, some globally, but we want to commit to praying for them just as Paul's friends committed to praying for them as they left to go away. And I'd encourage you to use our, our prayer guide You'll find them in the foyer. They're just a really helpful, practical way for us to to draw alongside the people who have gone from here with the gospel. I'd encourage you 
to pick one of those up and to commit to praying. There's 31, 31 boxes. You can pick someone to pray for every day. We see Paul's resolve to faithfully go. And as we venture into the rest of the text that hasn't been read yet, I'm going to pick out just two key aspects of what it looks like to faithfully keep going, persevering in the midst of tensions and and hardships. And the first thing we see is a striving for church unity. Paul and company, they've arrived in Jerusalem. They're greeted with a warm welcome. Paul shared what God has been doing among the Gentiles. And when James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem hear about it, they, they praise God. They then turn to Paul in verse 20 and say, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? Jews have heard the gospel and they've become Jewish Christians. They are culturally and nationally Jewish, but their newfound identity is in Christ. Just like we might be described as British or Northern Irish Christians or someone from Australia is an Australian Christian, you and I are are culturally, mostly in the room, culturally Northern Irish. And what is being communicated is that what is being falsely communicated in the social sphere is that Paul is saying you need to abandon all of the things that culturally make you who you are. Their perception is is that Paul is saying you need to become culturally Gentile as well as Christians. That's how it's being perceived. But Paul isn't and has not been saying that. So there's this proposal from the elders in Jerusalem. There are four men who have taken a vow presumably a Nazarite vow due to the head shaving being mentioned. And they they want Paul to, to go through the purification process with these four men and to cover the expenses of their sacrifices. And there are all sorts of debates whether or not it's actually appropriate for Paul to do so. But I think what's really going on here and what Paul wants to demonstrate is that, that he hasn't fully abandoned the law. He has abandoned it as a means of salvation, yes. But so have they. Both Paul and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they have all abandoned the fact that they have to work for their salvation. They're they're in a total agreement on that. But culturally, they are Jewish and Paul is still Jewish. And the aim is to show that Jewish Christians don't have to become Gentile Christians and Gentile Christians don't have to become Jewish Christians. So Paul goes through with this purification ceremony for the sake of gospel unity in the church. One commentator explains that Paul's purification is secondary to his purification in Christ. What does that mean? Well, when Paul goes down into the water, whatever the bath is for this, what it isn't is another baptism. It's not baptism. What it is doing is that it's representing what we do when we're already in Christ, but we 
find that tension of not living the way we want to, sinning against God and having to turn back in repentance and faith. And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul reminds the church in Corinth, he says, dear friends, he's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. It's not cleansing by the water, but rather the cleansing with the water represents the desire to to wash away our ongoing struggle with sin, which needs to be continually addressed until the Lord returns and makes all things new. So Paul is happy to partake in a ceremony that he he isn't required to take part in, but he does so that those who feel that they do need to partake in it because it's part of culturally who they are so that they know that together they are united in Christ. Does that make sense? In a a similar idea, the Bible tells us how we're to deal with the weaker brother. We have a freedom in Christ and while something might not explicitly be prohibited in scripture, someone may believe that something is morally wrong and therefore choose to abstain from that. And the famous example is the consumption of alcohol. If your persuasion is that drinking alcohol without getting drunk is permissible, okay, but you shouldn't practice that liberty with a brother or sister who thinks it's morally wrong to consume alcohol. What we do in those moments is that we, we set aside our preferences and we seek for unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Cross-denominationally, we, we may not necessarily agree with Hamilton Road Presbyterian's view on baptism or church governance, but we definitely strive together for the gospel. We definitely strive together for the gospel on matters of first importance. And for the Jewish Gentiles and Jewish Christians, the debate wasn't over alcohol or baptism. It was about whether or not The meat they ate was kosher, whether or not they could have table fellowship and sit with one another, whether or not it was appropriate to still circumcise their male children as a cultural thing. On matters of second importance, important, yes, but not primary, we we seek to strive for unity. We set aside our own preferences and we care about those around us. That's what Paul is doing when he visits James. And even though it isn't the pressing issue, the pressing issue in Paul's mind is that he's arrived in Jerusalem and the Spirit has told him that he's going to face imprisonment and hardships here. And that's that's got to be running around in the back of his head. But yet Paul still makes time for gospel unity with fellow believers because that is what is going to help us all faithfully keep going as we face trials and hardships for following Jesus. We need each other as we go into workplaces and schools and sports teams and social spheres where the good news of Jesus is currently not welcome and where our faith is met with hostility. Paul knows that if he is to faithfully keep going on mission for God, he needs to strive for church unity, gospel unity. The matter of first importance that they all gather around is that Jesus is Lord. And this is where we segue into our second observation in faithfully keeping going, which is proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. And what we're doing when we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord is we are saying that that we no longer seek to have any rule and reign 
over our life, but that the Lord Jesus reigns sovereignly, rules perfectly over every dominion of existence, and we trust in him. And Paul's doing a good thing here um, as in this purification ceremony, but as it comes to an end, if you look at uh, verse 27, a number of Jews from the province of Asia, upon seeing Paul, they stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, claiming that he brought a a Gentile into the, the inner court of the temple, a crime punishable by death. In verse 31, while the crowd are trying to kill Paul, news reaches the commander of the Roman troops and the Roman guard rush onto the scene and on their arrival, the crowd pull back, they stop beating Paul. In verse 33, the commander comes up and arrested Paul. The word for arrested is epilabanumai. And it's the same word that's used for how the crowd seized Paul in verse 30. So Paul was seized with force by the Jews so that they could kill him. And he is seized with force by the Roman guard to save him, to bring him into protective custody. And I think Luke Luke draws this contrast between the actions of the Jewish crowd and the Roman soldiers to prompt the reader to think about an event that happened some 30 years previously. When another Jewish man had a different crowd shouting to take his life. And yet the Roman officials could find no fault in him. John Stott in his commentary on Acts notes that Luke sets out to demonstrate the innocence in the eyes of the Roman law of both Jesus, which we see in Luke's gospel, and now Paul here in the Acts of the Apostles. And and to draw attention to the precedent which the outcome of their trials has established for the legitimacy of the Christian faith. And Luke's purpose has shown the church of all subsequent times and places of which we find ourselves in, how to behave under persecution. It's clear that the gospel is offensive enough to the people around us. And we are to behave with dignity and authenticity in the eyes of the community and the law. Let them pressure us and let them persecute us because we proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord, not because we are bad employees or annoying neighbors or troublesome busybodies. Let them pressure us and persecute us only because we proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. This wasn't a legal or a moral dispute at heart. This was a a dispute of theological orthodoxy. For the Jews, their traditionalism had distorted the genuine tradition. Paul didn't necessarily preach against every Jewish tradition as expressed in the Mosaic law, but rather he proclaimed the fulfillment of God's prior revelation in Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, And that the new people of God consisted of both believing Jews and Gentiles. What does that mean for us? As the Spirit of God works in Hamilton Road Baptist Church, which I believe he's doing, let's not be so comfortable with our theological orthodoxy, with our understanding that we have got it just right, that we become hardened to change. Let us be a church that not just allows but desires the Holy Spirit to shape us into the body of believers that he wants us to be.
that we would not miss out on his purposes like those holding fast to the Jewish tradition did in the pages that we're looking at this morning. Paul gets an opportunity to to speak to the crowd after being protected by the Roman officials and, and he takes this opportunity to connect with the Jewish audience. He speaks to them in in Aramaic. He speaks to them in the language that the most people there of Jewish descent will understand. And in 22 verse five, as he has recounted his his background in Judaism, he he gives them kind of a brief curriculum vitae of his life in Judaism. He says, if you don't believe me, the high priests and all the council can themselves testify. He wants to connect with them as as a Jew, as one of their own. Why? So that he can confront them with the lordship of Jesus. Let us work really hard to find the connection points with our friends and our family that give us the opportunity to gently confront them with the lordship of Jesus. What is good in their life? What do they value that is good in their lives that we can, we can point to and show them, but yes, that's good, but it's only good because it's, it's from, I was gonna say an even gooder, but a, an even better God who reigns over it all. Over and over again, and in the verses that proceed in, in chapter 22, Paul refers to Jesus as Lord. He makes it clear that the righteous one, God's promised king, the one who reigns supreme over everything was indeed Jesus of Nazareth. And it's those words prompting the crowd to erupt once again in 22 verse 22. Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. It was cried out about Paul. A similar cry was cried out about Jesus. Crucify him. He's not fit to live. And it has been cried out about many others over the centuries and across continents of those who declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we cannot trust in anything except Jesus. Friends, as we gather this morning, I want you to be under no illusion that you are all welcome here. We want to connect meaningfully with you. We want to get to know you better. I definitely do as the new guy in through the door. But if you're here and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are this morning being confronted with the Savior of the world, the one who reigns over all creation. And we naturally desire to be the ones who reign supreme in our lives When any ounce of control is taken out of our hands, we get a bit itchy and agitated. But that can't be. Everything else will fade away. The Lord will make all things new. And the one thing that will be the same between now and then is that Jesus will reign over it all. And if you want to know more about why we would be willing to die for this Jesus that we believe in, it's because he felt it necessary and worthwhile to die for us so that we might actually be able to believe in him, that we might be able to acknowledge 
that despite our attempts of ruling our own destinies, that we can turn to him, declare our waywardness of our attempts to rule our own lives and turn back to him declaring that that he is Lord, the Lord who took our place under God's wrath and judgment on the cross and then rose victoriously three days later from the grave. And if that intrigues you, if you want to know more about that, come and talk to me after, come and chat to Keith or any of the elders, the friend who invited you here. We have two more weeks of our our Hope Explored course on a Monday night, just in that little coffee dock area over there. You'd be more than welcome to come along. For those of us who love the Lord and seek to, to please him, to trust in him, as we faithfully go with the gospel, we will be able to faithfully keep going with the gospel in the face of hardships and trials, by loving one another, by striving for gospel unity, and by continuing to proclaim and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as we do so in the Lord's strength, we too can say with Paul, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Joan of Arc said, one life is all we have, and we live it as we believe in living it. But C.T. Studd, a British missionary, once wrote a poem, and the final stanza goes like this. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. You might stay in Bangor, You might move to Bangladesh, but if you share the gospel, proclaiming and believing that Jesus Christ is Lord wherever you go and wherever you are, by God's grace, it will continue to reach the ends of the earth. 